You know, as we, uh, am I on? As we start uh, this new series, uh, some of my favorite commercials have come out recently. Uh, I believe it's AT&T is the commercial where just okay is not okay. Have you seen those commercials where you go in to get your brakes fixed and he says, are you, you guys good at brakes? Ah, we're okay. You know, what do you mean? Well, you know, if the brakes don't stop you, something will. Um, you know, we don't want that with our cars. We, do, we definitely don't want that if we're going to be parachuting. Uh, we don't want the guy to go, well, I, you know, I packed your, your pack okay. You know, we want to make sure that it's packed fully. And as we think through, you know, those commercials are funny. I, you know, I, the first time I saw the one about the brakes, I laughed out loud, actually. Um, but as we sit and think through that, too often, I believe, in Christianity, in the church, we have allowed ourselves to think that okay is okay. We, we've taught that, you know, just come to church, be here on Sundays, be a part, join the church, do these different things, and, you know, the rest of your life, you just kind of live and do your own thing. There's going to be your church life, and there's going to be the rest of your life. And that's okay. But I think as we begin to look at the book of Romans, we're going to see that there's more to it than that. A gentleman named Bill Hall said this. I'm sorry, I went too far. There we go. What scares us most, well, excuse me, what scares most of us is not following Jesus. It is being like Jesus. To follow him is to admire his courage and to glean lessons from his teachings Jesus tells us that that is not enough. That simply to follow him and to honor him for the miracles is not the real call to discipleship. The real call is to be like Jesus. It is to do what he did. You see, just okay is not okay. Christ didn't come to make our lives easier. He didn't come to make our lives better. He didn't come so that we could join a church. He didn't come so that we can just say, well, I'm going to follow some of his principles, and I think he did a good job, and and let me get my bracelet that says, what would Jesus do, and and follow those kind of things. No, the issue is, is he wants to change our lives. Robertson McQuilkin says, the average experience of church members is far different from New Testament norms for the Christian life. That sounds harsh. But how many of us have been around church all of our lives? I've been in church since nine months before I was born. You know? I, I can probably count on, on, now I have to go with my hands and feet because of different ministry trips. I'm traveling sometimes on Sundays. But I can probably count on my hands and feet the number of Sundays I've missed church in my life. And a lot of times it's because I'm on ministry trip that I'm missing church. But the issue is not coming to church. The issue is what, is, what should be different about our lives? Because we've settled for mediocrity. We've settled for... This just being kind of what I do on Sundays and occasionally on another time. And, and, and so that's not, you know, just okay is not okay. Evan Hopkins says, It is the believer's privilege to know that there is now no condemnation for him, whether he thinks of himself as standing before God as a judge 
or as walking before God as a father. Now, we have taken that passage in Romans 8, which we'll cover later on in this series, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And we've taken that to mean, I can do whatever I stink and want, because God's not going to condemn me because I've given my life to Him. That is not okay. That is not what Paul's trying to tell us in Romans 8. The issue there is, yes, there are going to be times when you blow it, and you need to realize when you blow it, there's no condemnation, that there is the spirit of life that can give you the ability to not blow it again. You know, we've talked about this before, that it's not the idea that we become sinless, but the older we get in the Lord, we should sin less. It shouldn't be part of our whole lifestyle. And so, so we begin to sit and think that there's, there's this whole thing that it's, it's just okay. Robert C. McQuilkin, talking about the book of Romans, says, Romans presents salvation begun, salvation continued, salvation completed, and all by grace through faith. See, most churches are good to talk about salvation begun. We're going to share the gospel, we're going to get people saved, and then we get them to be members of the church and we forget all about them. You know, and if they come on Sundays, that's great. If they don't, well, you know, they've got different things going on. And, yeah, but it's really not whether of coming to Sunday. The issue is, are they growing in their walk with the Lord? Brian mentioned last week, you know, the, this law that was passed in New York. But how many of us spiritually bring a person to just about to be born, and we abort them and walk away, spiritually. Or we bring them to full birth, and we sit them on the doorstep and expect them to grow. It's not okay. And Paul, when he begins to talk through in the book of Romans, he's, not, he's talking about things that it's not okay to live that way. Now today, I'm going to be honest with you. You're going to have to buckle up your seat belts and hang on today. We are covering a large swath of Romans today. And and I don't normally like to do that, but I think for us to understand what Paul is saying, because it's not that Paul sat down one day and said, let me write the book of Romans so that it can go in the New Testament and people can carry it around in leather copies in the 21st century. No. He was writing a letter to people he had never met who had formed a church that he was coming saying, there's two reasons I want to come see you. One is I want to encourage you in your faith and let you encourage me in my faith. And the other is I want money. Sounds bad, doesn't it? That's, that's a terrible reason for him to... That's what he's writing Romans for. He's saying, I'm coming to you on my way to Spain, and I really hope that you'll help me get there. In other words, money. Now, what Paul didn't realize at the time he wrote this book, this letter, was that when he got to Rome, he wasn't going any further. He got to Rome, he was there, he was in jail, he ended up being beheaded there in Rome. But he's writing this letter so that he can help them understand why he does what he does, what, what this is all about, why it's not okay to just pray to receive Christ and live your life the way you want to live. But that's not what he says it. 
Because as we look at the book of Romans, and then we're going to start in chapter 1. That's always a good place to start. Um, chapter 1, Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. If you read on our website, it says we are a gospel-centered church. But we've kind of thrown that terminology around in, in American Christianity, especially to where it doesn't mean anything anymore. We have southern gospel music. You know, we have gospel... I remember, man, as a kid, this is going to date me for sure. The Sunday morning, you had the gospel jubilee. Anybody remember the jubilee? All right, there's a few of us old ones. Um, you know, I can remember Sunday morning, boy, that was it. Because you had, there was southern gospel music, all these ladies with extremely big hair and guys with extremely big hair and, and suits, you know, and, and they sang these gospel songs. And that was on in the background as you got ready for church. You know, you had it playing in the background. So, but we, we've begun to just abuse this word. Because for Paul to talk about the gospel, he's not talking about the gospel this, or the gospel t-shirt, or the gospel band, or the gospel. He's talking about the change that comes about through the gospel. He says in verses 14 and 15, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, that word barbarian can throw us. You know, we think of Conan the barbarian or whatever. The issue there is they didn't speak Greek. All right? He's not trying to be rude and talk about the barbarians. But for people who spoke Greek, which was the majority of the people in the known world at that time, if someone spoke a different language, it just kind of sounded funny. It sounded like they were just blah, 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 so they became barbarians. You know, we all do it, right, when you're learning a new language or you're around people who speak another language. You know, they said, da, 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 da. and they really didn't say, da, 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 da. they said something, you just didn't understand it. And so that's what he's talking about when he's barbarians here. But he's saying, I, need every, I want everyone to understand and know that I'm here to preach the gospel. It says not only that he's there to do it, but he's under obligation to preach the gospel. Now that sounds bad. Under obligation, I really don't want to do it. There, you know, somebody's twisting my arm. To make me share the gospel with you. But he's saying it's an obligation because God has changed my heart and I have to tell you. I have to let you know about Jesus. I have to let you understand this gospel. And we know that because he goes on to say not only is it an obligation, but that he's eager to share the gospel. He says this in another book. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, this gospel is what controls me. The love of Christ, the, the idea that I want you to understand what Jesus did for you, controls everything I do. That sounds a little different than 21st century American church, doesn't it? Does it control everything we do? The love of Christ controls us, this eagerness to share the gospel. But why was he eager to share the gospel? Verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says the power of God. The power of God. And that in this power, it is revealed the righteousness of God. What does this mean? Why is this important? Why do we have to understand the gospel? Why do we talk about being a gospel-centered church? Why do people talk about sharing the gospel? And unfortunately, a lot of times we talk about sharing the gospel, we mean inviting somebody to church, and that's not sharing the gospel. So what is he talking about here? There's, there's some questions we need to answer. The first question is, why do we need the power of God for salvation? Why do we need the power of God for salvation? So we're going to talk about the bad news. And we're going to cover a big area of of Scripture here. And I want us to understand because to me what happens is we tend to get bogged down on a certain list of sins and we say this is what we got to focus on. we got to nail everybody to the wall who's doing this. But remember, Paul's writing a letter. He didn't write it in sections. He wrote one letter that says this is what it's about. He said, I want you to understand the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, that in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So what is that power for? Why do we have to have that power? Well, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now, what does he say here? The first thing he says is they suppress the truth. We were talking about this this morning out here on the steps. You ever been in a situation where it really would be culturally inappropriate for you to laugh? For me, it's funerals. I mean, I, I, I don't know why, but there's something about especially if I'm on the stage as the person preaching it, things pop into my head that shouldn't pop into my head that I go, oh, man, I can't laugh right now. <laughs> there's, there's, there's this pressure. I got to keep my mouth shut. And it's tough. But what do I do? I suppress that laughter. I want to give it, get it out, but I suppress it. And he says here, the people understood. And when he talks about the people, he's not saying Gil. He's saying people in general. Mankind had the opportunity, knew God, can look around the world and see the creation and the attributes and the power of God, and in the midst of all of it, they still suppress the truth. They push the truth down so they don't have to deal with it. You see, that's what mankind has done. That's why we need the power of the gospel. That's why we need the power of God, because we've suppressed the truth. We knew the truth, but we, we pushed it aside. He says here, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You say, okay, wait, hey, I'm all right. I have never made an idol. I'm doing pretty good. See, it says here they, they made these things in the images of all. 
We didn't make an idol that way. But we make idols other ways. We have things that are more important to us than God. And he's saying, so that they've gone this way. They've exchanged the glory. They've exchanged the idea that we're going to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ and to the creator of the world. They understood and knew he was the creator. But they took and they said, all the glory that should go to him, I'm going to pour out on this pig. Or this person. Or this idea. Or this concept. You say, man, that sounds bad. Are people really that bad? You ever watch the news? You know, you ever looked at your own heart? We're all there. So he says, it's important that we have this good news. It's important that we have the power of God. Then three times in this next passage, he says in verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, there's a lot of list of sins right there. And we could get into getting bogged down into all those sins. But the point behind the God gave them up is this. Because I think what we tend to think is, if we get involved in this sin and we sin long enough, God will just give us up. And that's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage is mankind has refused to listen to God. They have suppressed the truth. Because they have suppressed the truth and they've decided to live their own way, God let them. God said, you want to live that way? Go for it. You ever had an animal that you're trying to teach them how to walk on a leash and they're constantly fighting? You ever try to drag a dog? You know, you say, well, no, I didn't do that. That's mean and hateful. Yeah, you did. Don't lie. If you're trying to teach... You're trying to teach them to walk on that leash, you know, and you, you, you're pulling and they're pulling back. And, and it's saying that mankind pulled on the leash long enough that God said, okay, you want to live that way? You want to live the way you want to live? Go for it. That's what the whole point of Romans chapter 1 is. God's saying mankind has decided to go as far away as they can. Now that doesn't mean that Everybody who's ever lived is the, as far out there as they could possibly get a sinner. You know, that the whole thing is all sin is sin. You know, so the nice little old lady who taught school all her life, sweet little old lady who never gave her heart to Christ, you know, her sin's the same as Ted Bundy's. You go, well, yeah. No. The point of, of a doctrine called total depravity is that we're not all as bad as we possibly can be it's that we all have the inability without Christ to get saved. Every one of us are totally unable to save ourselves. That's why we need the power of God. Because we walked away at some point in time. Mankind walked away and said, I don't need God. Now, maybe we're sitting thinking, wow, man, that's bad. I'm glad that's not talking about me. I'm glad I don't have to deal with all that. I've been a pretty good guy. I've been in church all my life. I've been a good kid. Well, that's where Romans chapter 2 comes in. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He says, it's easy for us to sit and look at at the world out there and how bad they are and make a judgment. He says, you know what? Even the good moral person, that we would consider the good moral person, the nice little old lady who taught school and died without Christ, she was a nice moral person. Even that person is without excuse because they've taken advantage of the kindness of God. Because God didn't allow them to go as far out here as possible then they assume that that means that everything's okay. And he says, no, it's not. God's kindness is there to lead you to repentance. So it's not a matter of everybody's as bad as they possibly can be. There are some good moral people. But the good moral people still need Christ. Still need the power of God. It's not a matter of I was just good enough and I worked my way up to being good enough and so now God's got to owe me, God owes me something. No. He's saying the same thing applies. That even though you may not have done it in the way that other people have done it, you too have suppressed the truth. You too have walked away. You too have chosen which sins are okay and which ones are not. Which ones are good for you to do and which ones are not good for you to do. And he says, we need to be careful here. So it's not just the, the terrible way out there person. It, it, it's, you know, maybe the moral person. You say, well, you know, I still feel pretty good because not only am I a good person, I go to church. I'm a pretty religious guy. I read my Bible once every couple of months. I read the new Christian books that come out. I got a t-shirt that says Jesus loves you. You know, we, we go through all these things and we say, you know, maybe the religious person has it okay. But what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? Then what advantage has the Jew, that's the religious person of the day, what is the value of circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithful know? Faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, though you may be justified, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous. Okay, there's a lot of stuff here. What he's saying here is the Jews, what, what advantage was it then to be a Jew, to be the religious ones of the day? He said they had advantages. They had the, the word. They had the Old Testament, they had the covenants, they had the promises of God. But even with all of that, they refused to obey. They suppressed all of that truth that was given to them and ignored God. You say, when did that happen? Well, read your Old Testament. You'll see it happen over and over and over again. And then read in John chapter 1, where it says, He came to His own, but His own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, we say, well, that sounds very anti-Semitic, Wade. 
You're, you're coming down on the Jews. I'm coming down on anybody who thinks their religion is enough. That their religion is going to save them. Because he's saying that's not enough. Now, their religion and their fact that they walked away from it doesn't change the fact that God is faithful. It just shows that they're unfaithful. He says all of these things, and then he comes to a summary statement at the end of chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, the person who is as wicked as we might possibly could believe, and we all know that they don't know God, is lost. The good moral person who does everything kind of well as far as mankind is concerned, who doesn't know God, is lost. The religious person who who obeys all the rules and goes to church and gives their tithe and does all those things, that doesn't know God, is lost. All are lost. I remember several years ago, we talked about having seeker-sensitive churches. Meaning if people are coming looking for God... You know, we want to make them comfortable. The problem is, according to the Scriptures, no one seeks after God. We choose to do our own thing. So so this is bad news. This is why we need the power of God. So what does it look like? Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3. Because remember verse 17 of chapter 1. In the gospel, the righteousness of God... Is revealed. How is it revealed? Verses 21 through 26 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith that was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness that at the present time, so that He might be both just and the justifier, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a mouthful right there. And I want us to get a grasp of what Paul is saying. Because remember he says, 
I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because it's the power of God for salvation. It reveals God's righteousness. But God's wrath is being poured out because mankind has chosen to suppress the truth and walk away from God. Mankind has chosen to say, I don't have anything to do with him. All of mankind has chosen that. But now, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he has sent his son to take care of the situation. He uses three words here. One, justification, all the big words that we talk about in Scripture. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Justification is a law word. He's saying, as we look at all of your sins, as we look at the the case against you, you are guilty. But to be justified, he has declared you not guilty. Because Christ took your sin upon himself. Christ took your punishment for you. You are declared righteous. That's justification. doesn't mean that we live righteous. We are declared righteous. We are now not guilty before him. Then he uses the word redemption. Now this is a word we don't like to talk about a whole lot today because it brings up bad memories of the United States in the 17 and 1800s. But this was a slave trade word. The idea was you're standing on the slave block, you are chained up, and Christ has come and he has redeemed you. He has bought you back and taken the chains off and set you free. You want a good analogy of that? Read the Old Testament book of Hosea, where Hosea is told, go and marry a prostitute. And he goes and he marries a prostitute and he lives with her for a while and she leaves him to go back into prostitution. Not only prostitution, but she goes back and pays men to be with her rather than waiting for them to pay her. And later on, God says, you know what I want you to do? Go buy her back because she's she's gotten herself to the point now that she's not only a prostitute, she is a slave now. Go and buy her back and bring her back to your home as your wife. And that's an analogy of what Christ has done for us. That we're slaves, we're chained to our sin. And Christ has bought us back. So we're justified, we're declared righteous before him. We are bought back, we are redeemed from our sins. And then the word propitiation is the word that we talked about last week, actually in the Old Testament when they built the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And that's where the blood was poured to cover the sin. It's the same word that's used here in Romans as propitiation. The idea is in the temple, when the blood is poured out, your sins are covered. So Christ took our sins and we're declared righteous. He bought us back from our slavery to sin. And he has taken care of by his blood the penalty for our sin. It says, so... So what does that mean we're supposed to do? What does he say here? Is that by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. That that by doing this, God has proven himself to be just. He's dealt with sin. He's been just. But he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That's what the gospel is. That's why we have to have the power of God. It's not a matter of just deciding on January 1st, I'm going to do better this year. 
I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do everything right. No, it's that we need the power of God to change who we are inside. You say, well, wait, I thought in the Old Testament that people were saved by bringing all the sacrifices. But, you know, they had all those sacrifices in Leviticus. Weren't people saved by that? Well, that's why Paul goes on to chapter 4. In chapter 4, he proves it, that it's not true. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also spoke of the blessing that comes. So he says here, wasn't it about the Old Testament that, that Abraham was justified by keeping the law? By being circumcised, by taking Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him. Wasn't he justified by that? Paul says, no. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He goes on in chapter 4 to say, Abraham believed God long before he was ever circumcised. Long before he ever took Isaac up on that mountain. Abraham was in was modern-day Iraq. That's where he grew up. So Abraham was an Iraqi. Abraham's in Iraq, and God says, what I want you to do is I want you to take your family and move to wherever I show you, and when you get there, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and through you, I'm going to bless all the world. And what did Abraham do? He packed up his belongings and he began to move. Why? Because he believed God. He believed God that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. You see, as we follow after Christ, as we seek to follow after Christ, we need to understand and know That it's not being church members. It's not doing better. It's not even maybe a prayer we prayed when we were a kid. It's not some magic formula. It's that without faith in Christ, we have no hope. But when we have faith in what Christ has accomplished for us, when Christ comes and changes who we are, it's that power of God who changes for us from the inside out that makes it so that now we can live the way He's called us to live. Because I don't care how many New Year's resolutions you have that you're going to do better without Christ, you cannot do it. Say, wait, that's pretty harsh. Well, neither can I. Without Christ, we cannot do it. Paul's building up as he's going to be talking about through the rest of the book, even though he doesn't know the, the commercial, 
through the rest of the book, he's going to be talking about just okay is not okay. There needs to be a change in our lives. We need to be different people. There needs to be something about us that people can't understand and grasp. Because there's a power of God that changes who we are. That's the gospel. The power of God for salvation. And so as we're together this morning, I want us to think. I want us to slow down a little bit. We've covered a lot of ground. And a lot of us here have been around church a long time. Some of you have heard my testimony when I was 17, and a girl at church, a new church I was going to, said, I can't believe Wade Hobbs is in church. And I'd been a Christian for nine years at that point in time. And I had to sit down and evaluate. A friend of mine asked me, Wade, are you programmed or are you converted? In other words, you've been in church all your life. You can answer all the Sunday school lessons. You got all the questions down pat. You can tell us, you know, who was thrown in the lion's den and all those things. But has Christ changed your life? Is Christ real in your heart? Now, I processed it and I came to the conclusion that he was from when I was eight years old. But I had a lot of buddies who came to the conclusion that when they did that, when they were eight, it wasn't real and they had to give their lives to Christ. It's because it's not a matter of becoming a church member. When I gave my heart to Christ, you know what they said? Wade is joining the church. Nobody introduced me at the front as giving my life to Christ and Christ going to come in and change my life. I was joining the church and getting baptized. Now, did I join the church? Yeah, I did. Was I baptized? Yes, I was. But it's because of the change that God worked in my heart. Are we living just okay? Or are we realistically not even that? Because we need Christ. See, I need Christ on a moment-by-moment, daily basis to live the way He wants me to live. But I needed Him originally to change my heart. The Old Testament says He took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. He changed who I am. Paul says in Corinthians that you're no longer the same. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. We read earlier in Corinthians, Paul said that because he died, he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Has he worked in your life? And that's not saying, when we say that, we're not, we're not sitting up here going, you're a terrible person and we've got it all together. What we're saying is we all need Christ. Have you said, I need him to save me right now. I need him to come in and take control of my life. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect tomorrow. But are you sitting here today saying, I've never done that. I've gone to church. 
I've tried to be good. I've made New Year's resolutions. I've done all these things, but I've never said, I need you to change my life. That's what the gospel is. Let's pray.